Well, good morning again. If you have your Bible, Psalm 122. Psalm 122 is where we are going to be this morning. And also, we're going to read, I'm going to read a passage from Colossians chapter 3, if you want to put your finger there. So page 440 in the church Bibles, that's Psalm 122, and page 835 for Colossians chapter 3. So after we read the Bible, we're going to pray, and, and we're going to, also we should thank God for the summer that has just passed, and so we're going to do that purposely in our, in our prayer of asking God for help. And when we're through, if you have a question about something we've said or sung, I'd be happy to try to answer those when our time together is completed. So Psalm 122, let's hear the word of the Lord. A song of ascents of David. I rejoice with those who said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There the thrones for judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Now Colossians 3. Just the first four verses. Since then, Christian, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, I, I love that phrase. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Amen. May the Lord... Bless the reading of his word. Okay, let's, let's pray together. Well, Father, we would confess this morning that we have too often forgot, many of us have, that we are yours, and sometimes we carry ourselves in our lives as if there was no God, no God to worship, no God to honor and obey, and no God's Son to speak of. For those of us guilty in these things, beginning with myself, God, we ask for your forgiveness, and we also ask for your strength. Please give us clarity of thought and openness of heart so we may bear witness to you in this world. Remind us to be who you would have us to be, regardless of what we are doing, when we are doing it, or who we are with. And in these things as well, we ask for your forgiveness if we have neglected them. And please then restore us according to your promises declared in Jesus Christ our Lord. And Father, grant that hereafter we would live a godly and righteous and sober life to the glory of Christ. Then, God, as the summer of 2014 now draws to a close, would, would you please, God, receive our humble thanks for all that you have so graciously provided this year. Beyond the homes that we have been given, beyond the food that we have eaten that came from your hand, and the restful sleep we enjoyed night by night, you also gave us, God, extra long summer evenings. The ability to take an evening or a morning walk with people that we love. You gave holidays that we enjoyed. You gave time and provision, and many of us were able to go away and enjoy pleasures and rest which you gave to us in this. You are a kind and gracious and, and generous Heavenly Father. You give far more, God, than we deserve, and even when you take away, there's a wisdom behind us that we'll see safely in heaven.
And we can't thank you enough for all these things which, which make life in one sense bearable on this earth, but in another sense you make life rich and enjoyable. So we are mindful, God, that these gifts that you've given are, are good, but they're not God. And we thank you that you portion them out perfectly. So when we come to the fall now and to the winter months, may we ever be mindful that to whom much is given, much is required. And so, Father, please then now glorify yourself in the preaching of your word. And we ask this in the name of the one who suffered and died in our place, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I'm going to begin my talk this morning quoting from Barry Manilow, of all people. And I was thinking this morning, the first time I heard of Barry Manilow, I, I got a gift in fifth grade, and it was his album, Cobra Cabana. You remember that song? Cobra, okay, don't remember it too much, because we've got to get to the work here. But, so that was him, and he looked much different than he does now. But all of us will, that, that long ago. So, anyway, Barry Manilow says this, says, looks like we made it. Okay? So, so we made it through the summer of 2014, and now we're at the end of our pilgrimage in Psalm 122. Because for the past three weeks, we've been working under the heading, Songs for the Journey. And the reason why we've been working under that heading, Songs for the Journey, is that we've discovered week by week that Psalm 120 all the way to Psalm 134 are given that title, A Song of Ascents. And in fact, this morning's title, A Song of Ascents of David. And so to the Old Testament, Old Covenant reader, these were songs to be said, as we've been saying, and prayers to be prayed as they made their pilgrimage annually to Jerusalem. So, for the New Testament Christian, we understand that this is quite different. Old Covenant reader, these were the obligations of being an Old Covenant member. And so they had to make their way to Jerusalem, celebrate, worship, and pay the annual temple tithe. So as you think about Jesus Christ as he walked this earth, more than likely he sang Psalm 122 and more than likely he prayed Psalm 122 as he was enjoying his covenant privileges. But, and this is very, very important, that's why I've been saying it week by week, when the new covenant reader comes to these Psalms, not being under any obligation to make a journey to Jerusalem for their standing with God, and, and not even, and we have to say this, not, ha not even thinking that somehow we're better off with God or we've moved up the ladder with God because we went there, we went to that holy place or have that, we would say, holy thing. We are to understand these Psalms which point to Jesus Christ in such a way that all those rites and all those rituals were, that were part and parcel of Old Covenant worship, they were laid to rest. We've been saying this week by week. They were laid to rest when Jesus was laid on a cross, hung there, died there, and was raised from the dead. And so, hopefully, maybe one or two of you are thinking about Martin Luther, reformer, 16th century Martin Luther. He had his own personal reformation, and he, before then, he made a pilgrimage to his time period's holy city, Rome. And he went to Rome because he was just sure that if he could get to that holy place, then all that stuff that he had inside, all that lostness and deadness that he had inside, somehow getting to the holy city and doing those holy things would make him be better and feel better. 
So let me just quote to you from a source. To Luther, Rome was the type of holy holies. There stood the throne of God's vicar. There resided the oracle of infallibility. That was his time period's pope. There dwelt the consecrated priests and ministers of the Lord. They went up year by year, armies of devout pilgrims and tribes of the holy hermits and monks to pay their vows in their temples and prostrate themselves at the footstool of the apostles. Luther's heart swelled with no common emotion when he thought that his feet would stand within the gates of the thrice holy city Rome. But... What a terrible disenchantment awaited the monk at the end of his journey, or rather, what a happy emancipation from an enfeebling and noxious illusion. So his illusion was that if he could get to Rome, then everything would be fine with him inside of him. And those of you who know the story, you'll recall, Luther made his own ascent up the Scala Sanctum. These were the holy stairs, and those were steps that were said to be the very steps that Jesus and Christ, stepped, Christ himself excuse me, stepped on on his way to trial during the events of Passion Week. And so Luther would take a step and he would bow and kiss the step and then he would take another step and bow and kiss the step and that's what they did at that time and he thought that that is what would be needed to put him in the right with God and to finally lay to rest that sense of emptiness and sense of frustration and estrangement that he felt even though religion, uh, Luther was a completely religious and devout monk. And he walks away from the holy city completely disappointed. Why? Because none of those things are the gospel. That is superstitious religious devotion, and it is corrupt. It doesn't save, it doesn't reconcile, it doesn't adopt, and it doesn't even give lasting peace. Maybe a piece of peace for a moment, but what good is that? And I think we understand that there is a superstitious element attached to our fallen nature, even as Christians, which would lead us to these type of things. So if I could just get that, if I could just go there, then all of a sudden some things will get better about me and God, about the way I feel inside. And as innocent as those things might seem to be, they would distract and they would devalue the great atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So then all of a sudden we're not keeping our eyes on Jesus to quiet our anxious conscience, to, uh, to, to help us along the way. And all of a sudden, we're keeping our eyes on ourselves using self-serving religious placebos. And in the case of, of Luther, holy cities, holy things, holy places. That is a danger. That is a danger for every Christian, but especially zealous Christians. Well, why? Well, we have to know this, that the love that we have for God in Christ is a love that's given to us in God, in Christ. And that love works itself out, not in the kind of way that says, I want to do more to be better so that I'll be closer to God. No, no, no. That love works itself out in just a flat-out, sensible thankfulness, thankfulness for everything that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. So when we sing, come let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, that makes complete sense on a Sunday, and so on. It makes complete sense for those who have already been saved from sin's power and saved from sin's penalty, and one day will be saved in God's heaven from sin's presence. Therefore, the believer's pilgrim's progress, again, is not a journey to Jerusalem. It's not a journey to any holy place or trying to get any holy thing. No, our pilgrim's progress is a journey to the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and to God's heaven. And so, if you want a phrase, this is a phrase, this is a cross 
centered, redemptive understanding. This is it. Cross-centered, redemptive understanding. This is how Jesus, if you would, would preach himself, Luke 24, from the Psalms. So when we looked at Psalm 120, this was about three weeks ago, we came to grips, honestly, with how hard and what a hassle it is to live in God's people in this world. Right? I quoted from Bob Dylan in my notes. The evening winds are still. I've lost the way and will. Can't tell you where they went. I just know what they meant. I'm always on my guard admitting life is hard. In Psalm 120, the psalmist there would say, absolutely life is hard. And last week, we went to Psalm 121, and we learned that the hills that the psalmist was speaking of, they were not alive with the sound of music. But if you were here last week, they were filled with threats and temptations and difficulties. And our life, as we make our way to God's place to be with God's people, our life is filled with those hills. And so over and over again, look at your Bible, we learn. The psalmist wrote Psalm 121 over and over again. Here are the things that can crush and calm your anxieties. Here are the things that put away your night sweats and doubts about God's care. The psalmist declares... God is watching over his people. Psalm 121, verses 3, verses 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. God is watching. God is covering. God is sustaining. God is leading. God is watching over his people. From start to finish and beyond, God is watching over his people. Verse 3, God never sleeps, so his people will never slip. And so you have to just appreciate just the realism of these psalms. I mean, I need someone to watch over me, don't you? I mean, don't, don't, you, don't you know that we'll never be so great in this world that we won't need a God to watch over us? Kids know this. What do kids say? Watch me. Are you watching me, Dad? Watch me, Mom. Watch me, watch me, watch me. Grandma, Grandpa, watch me. You're not watching me. Well, yes, I am. No, you're reading the newspaper. I want you to watch me. And so sometimes we aren't watching our kids. But we know that God is watching us all the time. He's always keeping, always covering, always refreshing. Sun, moon, Night, day, feast, famine, sickness, health, prosperity, adversity. God is always watching over his people. Do we need to do something? No, God is always watching over his people. And the psalmist then just, just pulsates with that truth. And the pilgrims then are encouraged to sing these songs to each other and to pray these prayers for each other and to God as they make their way to Jerusalem. And just let me stop just for a second and tell you, this is what is called devotional theology. It's kind of a technical word, devotional th- theology. This isn't like a sentimental dribble. You know, this is, this is meat and drink. So here is God's revelation, Psalm 122, 121, 120. This is who God is. So, so what is your need? Or if you're like, God, here is my need, Psalm 122, 121, 120. Here is your God. Here's your God. But I, no, here's your God. But I, no, here's your God. This might help you. It might not help you. It's a children's catechism question. I love the kids' catechism questions. Question, can God do anything? Answer, yes. And here's the key. God can do all his holy will. And part of God's holy will is to watch over his beloved people in order that they will safely arrive into his heaven. Guaranteed. Holy people arrive safely to the holy place, the new Jerusalem. Luther knew that. After Luther's conversion, listen to what he wrote. You know the song. 
And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. And then, then Luther goes on and he gets, he gets to the material world. Let goods and kindred go. Let this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Why, Luther? Psalm 121, he's always watching over us. And you see, when we get this, when we really get this, and we don't need any superstitious hubbub stuff to make us feel, desire more of God, listen carefully. Then we can sing the song that I just learned this week that had the line, My only hope is you, Jesus. My only hope is you. From early in the morning to late at night, my only hope is not in going to a holy place, not holding some holy artifact. No, my only hope, Jesus, is you. Is you. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes way that makes sense that makes sense to me that's that's how I want to live so now we come to Psalm 122 Psalm 122 and, and just by way of reminding we Hebrews 11 we might not all receive what was promised to us on this earth but as the Hebrew writer, writer wrote God has provided something better for us in his heaven so, so the, the the parallels between the pilgrim making a perilous journey to Jerusalem and the pilgrim making his perilous journey to God's heaven, they should be coming apparent to us. God's place with God's people and the joy there is in this. So look at your Bibles. Verse 1. I rejoice when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Question. Are you able to say that Sunday morning by Sunday morning? Can you say that when you wake up in the morning in whatever version of your alarm you have and it's saying, go to church, you know, you might not have that kind of alarm. Are you able to say that on a Sunday morning? I was glad when the thing woke me up and said, let's get to God's house. So in the same way, the pilgrim here in Psalm 122 is preoccupied with Jerusalem. They're singing and praying all the way there. It's the exact same way the Christian pilgrimage is to be a pilgrim, is to be preoccupied with God's church and God's heaven. See, that's what John saw. This is Revelation 21. Listen to what John said. He's in exile on the island of Patmos. And he says, then I saw the holy city. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. You see the, the synonyms there? The bride, the body, the new Jerusalem, the holy city, all synonyms. Keep that in mind. And then John said, and the dwelling with God is with men. And this is ultimately where we look. This is where we are headed. Everything is headed to heaven. Everything is heaven, heading to heaven. The everlasting church of God, the assembly of God's called people, all headed to heaven. And again, Revelation 7 this time. And there before me in heaven was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hand and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to a God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's, what is, that's where we're headed. So you might be asking this question. Why am I trying to spiritualize Psalm 122? Why am I saying, and this is what I'm saying, that the heavenly Jerusalem, the, the everlasting church of Jesus Christ, that's how the New Testament reader should look at Psalm 122 when they see that word Jerusalem. So why am I trying to spiritualize a psalm that was written 3,000 years ago by David when all David was doing was seeking God's prosperity of his recently captured capital city? That's why David wrote that. And so if you're thinking that, well, that's a good question, and I'm going to try to give you a good and true answer. 
First of all, whenever you go to the Bible, Old or New Testament, we have a responsibility. And our first responsibility is this. We need to know what it meant to the original readers first. That's where all the work is done and begins. Who was this written for and what would it mean to them? So you never come to the Bible trying to understand what it means to us first. Or this is what it means to me only. That, that makes for a recipe of disaster. Okay, a disaster. So when we know the original intent, and when that's clear, then and only then can we able, are we able to understand what the word means now. So the fact, that, uh, the fact of the heavenly Jerusalem spiritualizing Psalm 122 is not something that theologians just pull off you know, out of the air. It's something the Bible itself actually teaches. The Bible itself describes the ancient city, the holy city of Jerusalem, as an earthly picture of a heavenly reality. It's the same for Moses. Moses, when he walked this earth, he was given the picture of the heavenly tabernacle and they were to copy that pattern on this earth. So, for example, Galatians chapter 4, verses 24 through 26. Listen to your Bible. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, Paul says. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So, so Paul says there's two Jerusalems, and he defines the terms. Mount Sinai is present Jerusalem, still in bondage, not in Christ. They've rejected their Messiah. But Jerusalem from above is free. They're in Christ, and he says she is our mother. But not only this. If you know the New Testament book of Hebrew, you will recall how the writer is just meticulously explaining to his, here we are, largely Jewish Christian audience, and he shows how the earthly temple in Jerusalem was a copy of the heavenly realities. In other words, there was no reason to go to that place and do the things they did in the old covenant system of worship. So he writes in Hebrews 12 and other places, and, and he explains to them, okay, the, those animal sacrifices that were part and parcel of old covenant worship, that was a picture of what Jesus Christ would do once and for all, and he has done it. And he goes on further explaining the different elements of the temple, of Mount Sinai, the blood of Abel, the relationship between Jacob and Esau. And he gives, if you would, a picture of gospel realities in these things, so you have election, and you have atonement, and you have substitution, and all those Old Testament understandings. And then he even actually speaks of the city of Jerusalem itself. Let me just read to you Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 and following, because he's going to explain to the New Testament Christian what has happened to them. And he says this, But you've come to Mount Zion, to the holy city, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. Now listen, these are all synonyms of the same idea. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Verse 28, Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now I want you to see this. Hebrews 12, 22 and following. Hey guys, you've come to Mount Zion. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to the city of the living God. You've come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Same words. If you would, old names. Now given their complete and ultimate meaning as if you would the un unfolding drama of redemptive history, Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension, 
speaks a better word and gives a clear definition of what these Old Testament words mean. So he's speaking a better word and now the New Testament gives their ultimate meaning. So then all of a sudden you need to think. Psalm 122 is a global reality. No longer confined to a specific territory. There are no more holy places. But there are holy people in Christ. Listen to Peter, the apostle, to the Jews. This is Acts 10 from the message, uh, from the message translation. It's God's own truth. Nothing could be plainer. God plays no favorites. It makes no difference who you are or where you're from. If you want God and are ready to do as He says, the door is open. Anywhere? Yeah, anywhere. Anybody? Yeah, anybody. No special place? No, no, no special place. Holy place? No, no. Artifact? No, nothing. But I will that? No, nothing. And if you know your Old Testament, yes, in the Old Testament, the rule of God's people were localized. But even they knew. This is Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. They were to be a light to the Gentiles and to see God's salvation reach to the ends of the earth. They never did that. Christ is doing this now. They never did. And so Solomon's prayer then makes sense. You can't hold God in a place. 1 Kings 8, 27. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much this, much less this temple I have built? So, so God's not localized. I mean, I hope you don't come here and say, well, I feel stuff. Careful. No holy place. What makes this place so terrific? You ready? Jesus is here and you're here. Because we can do this just about anywhere. So if something happened to this, we'd be fine. We'd be fine. Memories, understand, but we'd be fine. Read Azariah, read Nehemiah. They use the same language. So, all those terms, the house of the Lord, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, the joyful assembly, Mount Zion, the holy city, the city of the living God, the church, the kingdom that cannot be shaken, each term, if you would, captures a component, a piece, an aspect of a true home, heaven. Right? A true home, Heaven. Heaven is unmovable. No place on earth is like that. Unshakable. No place on earth is like that. Heaven is our true eternal home. No place on earth like that. We are strangers here. We live loose to earth. In heaven will be truly and finally and forever home. Period. And all our fellowship in heaven will be to its fullest extent. We enjoy fellowship now, but it's not in its fullness. In heaven with God and with God's people, fullness. Best is yet to come. And that's why I read Colossians 3. Because every Christian should long for that. We're not here. Our minds are on heaven. We live better on earth when our mind is on heaven. And that's what Paul was saying and that's what I'm trying to say. So there's going to come a day. Right? The great city of God, the heavenly city, Mount Zion, will descend in great joy and glory from heaven to earth to bring, to bring a close to this age and bring in the final and everlasting age of the new creation and our new forever home. And we have to long for this. That's what Paul's writing. That's what I'm saying. Yes, Lord, your kingdom come. That's what the Lord's prayer. Every day, your kingdom come. Part of that means, Jesus, come now. Please come. Please come. And you should know, believe it or not, every time we assemble here week by week, that's a picture. It's an imperfect picture. We get that, but it's a picture of the reality that is waiting for us. 
Psalm 122.1, I rejoice when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Because this is a picture of God's heaven. Now, there's something else you need to know. When David wrote this, when he wrote Psalm 122, there, there was no temple built yet. That was a privilege his son Solomon would have. And the city that he's writing about isn't anything like what he's describing. And I say that because what is David doing? Well, he's doing what I'm doing. David is taking this psalm and he's inking words of a future grace that God would give his people. He doesn't have the full picture yet, but he knows something is better is coming and he begins to write. Under inspiration, he writes of the better that's coming. So David speaks of a city that he is not part of yet. And here's where you need to put on your, your thinking cap, okay? Psalm 87, you can flip to it if you want. Psalm 87 is the same thing happening there as in Psalm 122. There is more than meets the eye. Let me just read to you Psalm 87. He has founded his city on the holy mountain. Glorious things are said of you, city of God. I will record Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. And Babylon, pagan nation, among those who acknowledge me. Philistia too, and Tyra along with Cush, pagan, pagan, pagan. And will say, this one was born in Zion. Indeed, of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her. And the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord will write in the register of the peoples, this one was born in Zion. So what you have in Psalm 87 is symbolic language of a future grace, a day when pagan nations will be born in Zion. Verse 5, this one, that one, born in her. Verse 6, Psalm 87, the Lord will write in the registers of the peoples, this one was born in Zion. Now you, gotta, you have to think here, can't you hear Nicodemus' voice here? Okay, God, I have a question for you. How can someone who was born in Babylon, in Philistia, how can someone born in, in Tyra, how, how can they be born in Zion? And then Jesus comes along and answers, and he says, oh, they can be born in Zion if they are, you ready? Born again. Born again. So in other words, this is a spiritual reality. This is born again language. This is how the sons of Korah, writing this psalm about a day of future grace, when God would call his people from everywhere. Babylon, yes. Is God going to call a prostitute? Oh, absolutely. Philistia, sure. Tyrus, sure. To be born again in his holy city. So this is how these sons of Korah explain pre-cross how people from the whole world will be part and parcel of the great company of people before the throne of God that we read about in Revelation 7. Where are they going to be? Well, they're going to be in the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Now you'll notice we don't have any points this morning and, and there's a reason for that and we haven't gone exactly verse by verse and there's a reason for that. But I do want you to look at verse 6. Because when we see verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. How do we understand that? Because that phrase gets dropped in and out of all kinds of conversations. It gets thrown around here and there, everywhere, with any, without any context whatsoever. And that phrase needs to be set in its context. So I need to point out to you, and I want you to look at verse 6 in your Bibles. When it says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, you'll notice that there's a colon. And following the colon in our English translation, the prayer for the peace of Jerusalem is given to us in quotes. Do you see it there? Pray this. May those who love you be secure. And so on. So, so this prayer is not, oh God, bless the Jews and kill the Muslims. This is not, oh God, bless Jerusalem. You know, do whatever you want with Cairo. 
This isn't, oh God, make Israel prosper, but smite Iran and Lebanon and Syria and Syria and, and Saudi Arabia and do whatever you want with them, God. No, this is, may those who love you be secure. This is now about God's people everywhere. God's people heading to God's place, the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Question, where are the people that love God? Answer, they are everywhere. Question, where are they headed? Answer, they're headed to the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Question, and when the Christian sees, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, how are we to understand it? Answer, we are now to see this as a global reality. This is a global prayer for the people of God that will be ushered in safely to end their pilgrimage in the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Question, are you saying that we should not pray for the peace of Jerusalem here and now? Answer, of course not. But we ought to include this prayer of peace for every city and every tribe and every place. But... Here in Psalm 122, this prayer to the New Testament Christian means pray that God's people, heading towards the New Jerusalem, pray for them in every place that they'll be kept safe and at peace. Pray that they'll prosper. Pray they'll arrive safely, united, and we will seek the prosperity of the church. We will seek the prosperity of God's people everywhere. Okay, so, so if I'm completely wrong about verse 6, Ask yourself this question. Are there many cities in human history which has known so much violence and so much death and destruction and disharmony and has known no peace than Jerusalem? And then ask yourself this and consider this. Its own biblical history, the Jerusalem of the Old Testament and the Jerusalem of Jesus' day, wasn't even close to verses 3 and 4, a city compacted together where the tribes are united praising God's name together. That never happened. They were killing the prophets and stoning those who came to them. From, from Abel to Zechariah, Jesus said. And God's own son came and they killed him too. So I don't know what you know about Jerusalem, but it's like most large cities. It's mostly a pagan place. So, a question. Where are people who love God? Answer, they are everywhere. Some are Christian now. Some not yet born. Some not yet soon. Well, what is that? Well, that's God's electing love. And God's new Jerusalem, excuse me, is a heavenly Jerusalem. Well, then does that mean that Israel is no longer special? Of course not. Because every person from every place that God calls out of darkness is special. Again, I'm going to read from Acts 10. Peter, the apostle of the Jews, says this. I now realize it's true. God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear Him and do what is right. You see how dangerous superstitious, superstitious attachments are to holy cities and holy things? They can run us aground. So when we read this psalm, we need to understand the totality of God's purpose. A day is coming, new heaven, new earth. Jesus himself will wipe away every tear from our eye and we will enjoy a peace that only comes as a result of his shed blood for us on Calvary's cross. And that's it. Because, loved one, what makes for lasting peace? Tell me. What makes for lasting peace? The Bible only gives us one answer. It's to be with the Prince of Peace, our Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes to rule and reign over a new heaven and a new earth. And so that is what we are to look for. That is, if you would, the pilgrim in their progress. So just one last question. 
a series of questions. Are we, by God's grace, on the journey? Are you on the journey? Are you trying to take shortcuts? There's no shortcuts. Are you prepared to be a traveler heading to the wonder of the new Jerusalem? Are you prepared to take hits, hurts, hassles as we make our way there? Are we prepared not to listen to all those who promise peace, peace, and they give us all those placebos of peace? Oh yeah, come over here. This is a holy place. Come on, buy this. It's a holy thing. Come on, come on. Are we prepared then to seek the prosperity of God's church where God's people dwell? And one day, you know, we're all going to assemble together in New Jerusalem. I just, uh, just can't even imagine it sometimes. You need to think those things through. I need to think those things through. And we need to enjoy our Christian privileges and our pilgrimage. One last thing. If you received a worship folder, we just look at the back there? And do you see the title of the sermon? It was my only clever moment all week. Do you see the title? It's Newton's hymn, Solid Joys, Lasting Treasure, None but Zion's Children. No. Who's Zion's children? Well, I am. And if you're in Christ this morning, you are. Thank you for your attention. Let's pray together. But Father, we give glory to your name. We know that Psalm 122 can be difficult to understand, can be hard to be faithful to, but we, we want to try to be as best we can, God. And so we thank you for what Jesus has accomplished to make Psalm 122 come alive, guard us and guide us and, and even hold us back when we're not thinking or saying appropriate things about places and people and so on. Now, Father, would you grant to us the rest of this day, your day of peace of heart and mind, May those of us who have the holiday off tomorrow, may we enjoy the company of our family and friends. And may we think about heaven more than earth. And Father, may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the great fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours in Christ, both now and forevermore. Amen.